Hey everyone, it's Amanda here, and there isn't a brand new episode available today. Instead, I'm sharing the first Patreon-exclusive episode I made last year about Victoria's Secret. It's a thrilling story, and I wanted to give you a taste of the kind of bonus episodes that are accessible only to listeners who support the show via a monthly Patreon donation. In addition to a new episode every month, you receive a bi-weekly extra credit reading email that shares some of the stuff I've been reading and thinking about, and you get some cool clothes horse swag designed by Dustin and me. But most importantly, you support my work on clothes horse. Making a podcast costs money, it takes a lot of time, and I haven't had a job since the pandemic began, so I have to rely on the community to keep the podcast going. If you're interested in supporting my work via Patreon, go to patreon.com slash podcast. And as always, there are other totally free ways you can support the show by writing a review on Apple Podcasts, uh, recommending the show to your friends, or sharing our content on social media. And Every bit helps, and I'm super grateful for all of it. I'll be back on Wednesday with our first episode of Labor Month, and it's a good one. All right, well, let's get on with the show. Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that is excited to finally have someone to blame for the whole whale tail trend. I'm your host, Amanda. Guess what? This is our very first Patreon exclusive episode. I never thought that I would be doing this in a Close Horse episode, but I'm about to read you a few lines from the film The Social Network, which you might remember was about the founding of Facebook. I can't remember when it came out, but to be honest, I only saw it like a year ago. (laughs) I'm always the last person to see every movie. So if I haven't seen a movie yet, it probably means there's one other person out there in the world who is waiting to see it first. (laughs) I want you to imagine that I am Sean Parker, the founder of Napster, who was played by Justin Timberlake in the film. And he's talking to Mark Zuckerberg, the founder of Facebook, who's played by Jesse Eisenberg in the film. And I'm not going to do this as well as Justin Timberlake for so many reasons. (laughs) A Stanford MBA named Roy Raymond wants to buy his wife some lingerie, but he's too embarrassed to shop for it at the department store. He comes up with an idea for a high-end place that doesn't make you feel like a pervert. He gets a $40,000 bank loan, borrows another $40,000 from his in-laws, opens a store, and calls a Victoria's Secret makes $500,000 his first year. He starts a catalog, opens three more stores, and after five years, he sells the company to Leslie Wexner and the Limited for $4 million. Happy ending, right? Except two years later, the company's worth $500 million, and Roy Raymond jumps off the Golden Gate Bridge. Poor guy just wanted to buy his wife a pair of thigh highs. Okay, so 
Ostensibly, Parker is trying to explain to Zuckerberg that sometimes the true genius isn't the idea itself, but the hard work and experience to make the idea reach its full potential. And while I may have just spoiled the entire plot of this episode by starting this way, I promise that there's so much more to hear. And it does in a weird way kind of like summarize part of the Victoria's Secret story, but not all of it. The irony is not lost on me that this is an episode about Victoria's Secret, right? And I've already started by talking about two men and reading lines that were ostensibly spoken by a man, right? And the story of Victoria's Secret, which is a story that caters to women, stars two men with a supporting cast almost entirely made of men. Like this is the man show, but we're talking about bras and panties. And it doesn't surprise me, maybe not you either, because I've seen time and time again in my career that the old guard of fashion and retail has always been men. Today in 2020, as we see these big retailers and brands seem more and more and more out of touch, we can thank the decades of domination by rich, white, cis, and now old men. How do you explain why Black Lives Matter to an 80-year-old billionaire white dude? How do you make the same person who came up in the era of company-sanctioned ass-grabbing understand me too? Or classism, fatphobia, transphobia, homophobia, tired old beauty standards and gender roles? Or how about the impact of global warming and the drive for more sustainable and socially responsible business practices? I mean... I just don't think you can expect anything there. That's why so many brands that still cater to young people, and I can't say the name of their major retailer I'm thinking of when I say this, but these brands that cater to young people don't speak to sustainability on any level, and they totally blew it with their Black Lives Matter responses, among many other just stupid things they've done in the past year alone. I mean, this is an entire line of thinking that is profits over people. So it's Nordstrom billing their employees who were furloughed for their health insurance. It's corporations saying, listen, we have plenty of cash on hand, but let's eliminate a whole bunch of jobs and cut off people's health care during a pandemic just so we can maximize our profit margin. I mean, this is what business has been for so long. This is why these brands are just floundering in this new world. And they can't even begin to understand Generation Z as they only kind of understood the millennials, but they did know that we all secretly love to buy shit a lot more than we might admit. So they were able to kind of keep coasting there, right? Oh, and they knew we liked really minimalist packaging. So they just adapted to that, right? Okay. In the mid-70s, Roy Raymond did walk into the Intimates department in a department store to buy lingerie for his wife. But what he found were ugly nightgowns, girdles, utilitarian but unsexy bras, and lots of pretty basic full coverage underwear. Because that's what lingerie was at that point. It was utilitarian. Underwear was sold in packages of three. Most of it was cotton. Maybe it had a tiny bit of lace trim or that like, you know, ubiquitous, tiny and wasteful bow, but that was as wild as it got. 
It was all about practicality and durability. Like you might wear a little something special for your honeymoon, but that was it. Day to day, it was all about practicality. That's even how it was sold to women in ads. It was all about, here, make the investment in these underwear. They're going to last a long time. They won't let you down, right? If you wanted truly wild stuff like marabou trim or push-up bras, thongs, wild colors, you would go to a place like Frederick's of Hollywood, which definitely seemed a little too wild and sexy to the average American. For many, it was no different than a sex shop. House coats, slips, maiden form, and vanity fair, this is what you would find in the standard intimates department. And of course, lots of fluorescent lighting. Like, it wasn't a mood, right? <laughs> it definitely wasn't sexy. Roy Raymond felt like a creep there. Not only could he not find what he wanted, the women who were working and shopping there just eyed him up like a pervert. This was the light bulb moment, right? Raymond wanted to open a lingerie store where a normal husband could comfortably shop for lingerie for his wife. He imagined something with like a boudoir vibe, dark wood, oriental rugs, velvet or silk drapes. You know the look, right? Maybe some fringe on the curtains. <laughs> In 1977, with $80,000, which I mentioned in the intro, that was a combination of his savings and some loans from his family, he and his wife, Gay, opened their first Victoria's Secret store in a small mall in Palo Alto, California. He chose the name Victoria because it evoked the respectability of the Victorian era and secrets. Well, that was referring to like both the lingerie and the thoughts of intimate moments that would be hidden below a woman's clothing. And you know what? The brand was a success. It earned $500,000 in its first year. And that might not sound like much to you, but that was the equivalent to the purchasing power of $2.1 million in 2020. Part of that success was due to the catalog that sat alongside the store, which reached customers all over the country. And within five years, Raymond had opened three more stores and was bringing in about $4 million in sales each year. But somehow, the brand was nearing bankruptcy. It just didn't feel accessible to the average shopper, and it was unfortunately kind of holding onto that sort of sex shop stigma of Fredericks of Hollywood. I mean, it didn't help that the catalog was just a little too sexy, a little too racy. To be honest, a little too reminiscent of softcore porn. I looked at a bunch of photos from the late 70s catalogs, and you know what? They were weird. Like, the women looked kind of uncomfortable. It was very odd. And so all of these missteps around the brand, basically, were sort of just capping out Victoria's Secret in terms of growth. Well, enter Les Wexner, the other male main character of this story. Now, we talked about Les Wexner in our Bath and Body Works episode. He was the founder of Limited Brands and a close friend of Jeffrey Epstein. And that's important because that's going to come back later in this episode. Back in the early 60s, when Wexner was just in his 20s, he saw that women were wearing dresses less and less, and instead they were opting for separates and casual wear. He wanted to open a store that had a more limited assortment, aka the Limited. 
And you know what? His instinct about what women wanted to buy was right. This limited store grew to 11 stores by 1970 and 188 by 1977, which was the year Raymond opened Victoria's Secret. So Wexner was obviously a retail genius, but ironically, maybe a little sadly, he never actually wanted to go into retail. He spent his childhood watching his parents run a clothing store, which guess what, was named Leslie's after him. And he was turned off by how they worked 80-hour weeks and barely scratched out a living. In 2003, he said, Growing up, I knew you were supposed to have a profession and something that was better than being a shopkeeper, which is what my parents were. I didn't want to go into the retail business. I hated it. So Wexner enrolled in law school, but he hated that. It wasn't creative enough. And this is pretty weird. He found himself on breaks drawing store concepts and layouts. Like, who does that? Well, he knows that's weird, too. He said, some people made erotic drawings or wrote their girlfriend's name. I did stores. So he dropped out of school and began working in his parents' store. And he noticed something. It was separates like tops and sportswear that were really driving sales, not dresses and coats as his father had assumed. And hence, the concept for The Limited was born. By 1982, Wexner was worth $50 million. He had opened more than 300 limited stores across the U.S., and he was building a new brand called Express. He was also looking to branch out into new brands and retail concepts. He had already purchased Lane Bryant. On a business trip to San Francisco in 1982, Wexner discovered Victoria's Secret. He said, It was a small store, and it was Victorian. Not English Victorian, but brothel Victorian with red velvet sofas. There wasn't erotic lingerie, but there was very sexy lingerie, and I hadn't seen anything like it in the U.S. Now, Wexner didn't know much about lingerie, but he knew there was some potential there. He said, Most of the women that I knew wore underwear most of the time, which is weird. And most of the women that I knew, I thought would rather buy lingerie most of the time, but there were no lingerie stores. I thought if we could develop price points and products that have a broader base of customer, it it could be something big. So he offered the struggling Raymonds $1 million for the stores and the catalog. And he began, seriously, one of the most successful rebrandings in retail history. When I take myself out of the equation, knowing that Les Wexner and I would not have much to talk about, that I'm sure he has tons of antiquated ideas about women, business, and women in business, when I take myself out of that, I can still say as professional, like, OMG, this was so smart. So Wexner brought Victoria's Secret back to the limited headquarters in Columbus, Ohio, and got the team to work on rebuilding it. First... Wexner knew that this idea of a lingerie shop focused on selling to men was just not a good concept. In fact, he believed, and I will agree with this, that women were just as uncomfortable shopping in a Victoria's Secret store as Roy Raymond had been shopping in the lingerie department at a regular store. So Wexner and his team headed to Europe to visit its lingerie boutiques, which at that point were very different than they were here in the United States. In Europe, lingerie was sort of like an everyday luxury, a sexier approach than the American preference for sturdy and practical. 
And he returned believing that if everyday American women had access to sexier daily use lingerie, they would drop their studio briefs in a second. So the store needed a major rebrand. Some things were simple, like, for example, moving the fitting rooms to the back of the store. Yes, for some reason, the fitting rooms in the original Victoria's Secret stores were in the front, which, ugh, that just like ups the creep factor when you remember that it was designed as a place for men to shop. They also moved the bras to the back of the store, which I can remember from the earliest era of Victoria's Secret. This boudoir approach was ditched in favor of a sort of English lady approach, I guess, really more of like the English Victorian, right? So it kind of perfectly married the accessibility of a more modest visual aesthetic and the aspirational lifestyle of the English monarchy, which every American kind of worshipped. And this was also a time when... Americans were really into the Victorian era, like aesthetically. I mean, even when you look at someone like Laura Ashley, that's a big part of that brand. And this is the Victoria's Secret that I very vaguely remember from my childhood, a place I might accompany my mom while she bought a silky robe and some sort of very flowery body lotion. The stores played classical music, which... They actually sold compilations of by the cash register. That makes me laugh. The thought of people in the 80s, just like middle America, going to Victoria's Secret and being inspired to buy a tape and later a CD of classical music is its kind of incredible, actually. <laughs> and the exterior of the store was dark wood with like a huge ornate door. One felt like they were actually entering a store on a posh little street in London, which was great because while the company was based in Columbus, Ohio, the catalogs said that the home address of the company was actually number 10 Margaret Street in London. This kind of reminds me of all the fake branding around Bath and Body Works, right? Like Kate and her chemistry degree, or I guess actually she got a biology degree growing up on a farm and making her own beauty products. Like this is the same sort of like mythology that they're creating here, that there's even a fake address on the catalog. And the store decor included ornate vintage inspired dark wood built in like cabinets. I remember these, they were cabinets and then drawers on the bottom that would house all the bras and whatnot. There was floral wallpaper, very, very Laura Ashley, elaborate brass fixtures, overstuffed chintz chairs, and Victorian-era perfume bottles scattered about in display. Basically, the store was now a place that women would want to hang out where they would feel comfortable, and you know, they might feel kind of sexy. The catalog was also changed. Gone was the raciness, and instead, the models looked like they had stepped out of vogue. There was more lifestyle, a lot of that, like, English countryside decor and merchandising. Think, like, four-poster beds with artfully mussed quilts and armoires full of tiny little silky nighties. And, you know, the product changed, too. Rather than lots of different items in one color— 
the focus shifted into what we call in the buying world programs. Basically, that's like taking key silhouettes that customers loved and rolling them out in five, six, ten colors, and then reordering the most popular, what we would call evergreen colors like black, nude, and white, while introducing more seasonal colors that we call pop colors every few months to kind of get you back in there. Like maybe you came in for a white bra, but you'll add that hot pink one on top of it. And another thing that was really different about the approach that Victoria's Secret was taking to product is that colors, prints, and fabrics were adapted from actual fashion trends instead of just being like, well, who cares? You're just wearing it under your clothes. Like in the past, lingerie, of all types had never been tied to actual fashion trends or fashion at all. So all of these nighties and robes and bras and panties, they all felt in line with what the customers were buying to wear over their underwear. The merchandising geniuses back at Limited Brands also worked on universalizing the fit, which I mean, I'm just gonna say here that I've never been a huge fan of the bras of Victoria's Secret. Then again, I don't think I owned one until the aughts. Maybe they were a lot better in the 80s and 90s. All this hard work pushed intimates and lingerie front and center, bringing it into every mall because there weren't stores in the mall at this point that just sold underwear. I mean, now that's so commonplace. I can think of every mall I go to, I can think of three, four, five places that are literally just selling underwear, right? (laughs) But this was different. And eventually, Victoria's Secret almost became like shorthand for romantic gift. By 1995, Victoria's Secret had become a $1.9 billion company with 670 stores nationally. So just in a little bit more than 10 years. By 1995, Victoria's Secret had become a $1.9 billion company with almost 700 stores nationally. So all of that in just a little bit more than 10 years. And the company continued to innovate in terms of product offering. So they created the Miracle Bra as a counter to the Wonder Bra. Uh, They had a huge and well-loved bath and body line. I mean, that glittery lotion was everywhere in the early aughts. And eventually they created the more casual college girl brand pink, which for years was the bread and butter of that business. I believe I saw an analyst referring to it as the sacred cow of Victoria's Secret. They also continued to refine and tweak the company image, abandoning that like Victorian English lady approach around 2000, shifting into the more like sleek black and pink decor that we know now. The annual Victoria's Secret fashion show became a cultural moment and a particularly steamy commercial that aired during the 1999 Super Bowl sent millions of visitors to the Victoria's Secret website. I heard there were some website difficulties too, because remember 1999 was like not the golden era of shopping online or even using the internet. This was like the AIM era. (laughs) And a billion people in 100 countries logged on to watch the fashion show. In 2014, Victoria's Secret was the most popular apparel brand in the world 
with annual revenues over $5 billion. So we're looking at like 28, about 28 years of Victoria's Secret just being on top, right? That's pretty admirable. I mean, to a certain extent, this story is reminding me of Bath and Body Works so far, right? Being a company that was essentially a disruptor in how we buy things, totally changing the kinds of stores we see in the mall, even to today, right? One analyst credited Les Wexner with starting the whale tail trend of the early aughts. <laughs> Finally, someone to blame, which if you were lucky enough to miss it, was when women would pull their thong up like really, really high so you could see it above the back of their, of course, low-rise jeans. Please, let's ensure that neither of those ever come back into trend. Please, for the love of God, please, please, please. The analyst who credits him with this said, he made it a trend. All of a sudden, women wanted people to see what they were wearing underneath and innerwear became outerwear. Okay, I'm just going to say, it's not Les Wexner who made innerwear become outerwear. It was Madonna in the 80s and early 90s. Like, how, how about all those pointy comb boobs? Let's not give Les all the credit here. I will say, yes, this guy, he knows what he's doing. He did not turn lingerie into clothing. Just saying. But to be fair... Victoria's Secret did create this new industry of wearable lingerie, of highly accessible everyday sexiness. And it opened the door for brands like Hanky Panky, Notori, Airy, even Calvin Klein's line of sheer mesh bras and panties, which took the world by storm in the mid-90s. In fact... And this is one of the few times in my life that I have been knowingly around a famous person. I'm pretty oblivious, so I'm probably surrounded by famous people right now and I don't know it. But <laughs> this one, I actually know. In college, I worked for Urban Outfitters in the 6th Avenue store in the village in New York City. It's no longer open. It's RIP. I don't know what's there now. And I was working in the bag check station one night when Johnny Depp and Kate Moss, who were like the most famous people in the world at this point, and they were also a couple. So I guess they were just like this mega famous, beautiful, super cool couple. I mean, imagine both of them walking by you while you're giving people their backpacks back. They came into the store so she could buy some Calvin Klein underwear. And it, this was that sheer mesh era of Calvin Klein. Like this was the first year that that stuff had come out and it didn't look like anything else that was out there. It was every day, but it was also really sexy. It was like minimalist in a lot of ways. Anyway, still timeless. Still my favorite aesthetic in terms of intimates for sure. So Kate Moss was wearing a huge wool cape, so stylish, definitely made an impact on me. I own a huge wool cape now. And Johnny Depp had very, very, very strong BO, like major eyes water, made the store smell after he left and someone had to spray some air freshener. Um, That's the first time I think I'm telling the story to anyone. So it's added bonus. <laughs> Anyway, back to this episode. 
The great thing that Wexner did was recognize the huge white space in the market that was unspoken for, and he brought in innovation. This is according to Craig Johnson, who's president of Customer Growth Partners, a retail consultancy. He says, he made sexy mainstream. That was his genius. Now, this is not the end of the Victoria's Secret story, but I want to return to Roy Raymond, the original founder of Victoria's Secret. After selling the brand to Wexner for $1 million, he and his wife Gay decided to shift gears completely, and I mean completely, by opening an incredibly upscale children's boutique and catalog called, (laughs) this is a weird name, My Child's Destiny. This brand has basically disappeared from the internet. I couldn't find any images of the catalog or anything else, but I did find an amazing article in the New York Times archive that describes this store as elegant and elegantly priced, which seems like a little bit of a burn. (laughs) According to the article, here are some of the things that the store carried. Okay. Well, it's going to get kooky right off the bat. Are you ready? This is a children's store. Apple computers, baby Bjorns, an imported Swedish potty chair, a Galway Irish crystal baby bottle labeled for decorative use only, not to be used to feed baby. I mean, that was just some of it. They had clothes. They had all the stuff. They had books, toys, all of it. The Raymonds believed that the well-heeled and deep-pocketed yuppies were about to start having children and that they would only want to buy high-end luxury items for what would probably be their only child because this was kind of the first generation of women waiting a lot longer to have children. Of course, plenty of them went on to have many children, but this was the gamble the Raymonds were taking. And their ad campaign really solidified that strategy. This is also from the New York Times describing the ad. Two perfect blonde children staring resolutely out from behind classic tortoiseshell glasses in the pages of the New Yorker, right next to the theater reviews and above the ads for vacations in Barbados. The little girl is pictured in a print dress with an elaborate lace collar. The little boy is in a suit and tie and looks as though he is well on his way to becoming an investment banker, just like daddy. Discreetly written under the picture are the words, my child's destiny. Well, you're probably not surprised to hear that this advertising campaign seemed to alienate almost all potential shoppers because it made the store seem way too expensive and posh, like it was overkill. And Yes, not everything in the store was expensive, but the product assortment was like all over the place. Like they would have totally accessible Oshkosh overalls that anybody would buy for their kids sitting next to an almost identical pair from another brand that were $100 or more. It just made no sense. To top it all off, the store itself was in a very bad location, Most of the storefronts on that block were empty, so it gave the whole block an abandoned feel. And you know what? There was no foot traffic as a result. Well, you're probably not surprised to hear that all of these business miscalculations forced the Raymonds to file for Chapter 11 bankruptcy two years later. 
The Raymonds ended up divorcing, and in 1993, Roy Raymond jumped to his death from the Golden Gate Bridge, leaving behind two teenage children. And here, everything ties back to the intro, where I read those lines from The Social Network. And that movie already made me queasy every time I logged into Facebook, but somehow reading that quote aloud and telling you the story makes me even more repulsed by Facebook and maybe Justin Timberlake. (sighs) Roy Raymond had the insight to see that the way both women and men shopped for lingerie needed to change. Like there was so much opportunity there and he saw that. But Les Wexner saw how that had to play out strategically. He had the experience. Roy did not. Remember, Roy had an MBA. He just wasn't good at business, I guess. But this is not the end of the episode. It's totally not the end of the story. Because there's so much more to talk about regarding Victoria's Secret. Okay, so... As a reminder, the brand was on top of the world in 2014. It was the most popular apparel brand in the world, whatever that means, with annual revenues near $5 billion. I mean, they were churning out tons of fragrance glitter spray and those pajama shorts that said pink on the butt. They were on a four-year run of record sales growth under the leadership of longtime CEO Sharon Turney. And this is during a time when all the other mall-based stores were like spiraling toward a meltdown because it was the beginning or perhaps the continuation, depending on who you ask, of the retail apocalypse. E-commerce, including a lot of new e-commerce brands that didn't have a store presence like Mod Cloth, Nasty Gal, Zappos, they were like kicking traditional retail's ass. In Q1 of 2014 alone, Walmart closed 125 of its neighborhood and express stores. Macy's closed 40 of its full format department stores. And then American Eagle, Kohl's, Sears, some other brands, they closed a ton of stores. And Aeropostal filed for bankruptcy. So things things were bad. So that was 2014. But then... 2016 happened. As far as I can tell, 2015 was also pretty good for Victoria's Secret. But then the next year, the downfall began, I guess. (laughs) So the longtime CEO, Sharon Turney, who had led the company through these just like high-flying years, despite all the rest of retail just melting down, she abruptly left the company. Like, super suddenly. No one saw it coming. And I'll tell you, despite some serious Googling, I'm unable to find the reason why. Her official statement was that she wanted to spend more time with her family, but some former employees say that Wexner forced her out. So we'll never know, you know? So Les Wexner stepped back in as interim CEO, but to be honest, he had been out of the actual active running of the company for a long time, and it made the rest of the team nervous. Wexner made a series of just quick and fast changes. He killed the catalog. He killed the swim business, which I'm going to tell you, people are still upset about based on my reading all over the internet. 
people want the swim to come back. And I will say that Victoria's Secret was like legendary for really good swimwear. He also killed the apparel categories, which I do remember my mom getting the apparel catalog and it was pretty cute. And all over social media, people are still pissed off that that's gone too. So it seems like he was making a lot of bad decisions here, but he wanted to focus solely on lingerie. He wanted that to be the core part of the business. This was a really serious gamble and most definitely a misstep. Immediately, the business and the stock price tanked. Like, it happened so fast. One former executive who had worked in the Victoria's Secret New York office for nine years and had been laid off in 2017 told Business Insider, everything started to crash. It was the beginning of the end. Next, the brand was unable to adjust to new trends in the market. For one... They were slow and very unsuccessful in shifting from, you know, their cliche padded push-up bras to what was now more relevant, which was bralettes, sports bras, unlined bras, just a totally different approach to bras and underwear. They did not react to that. And by the time they did, it was already too late. Like I kind of remember they were having a sale and I looked and they had one bralette, but it was heavily padded. And I was like, who would buy that? Well, apparently no one did. They also completely missed the trend of like natural bodies, body inclusivity, size inclusivity that other brands were running with successfully. So like Airy, Third Love, Lively. And I'll tell you, at this point, Victoria's Secret felt like a dinosaur, just so out of touch. Like All of those like sexy commercials and billboards, they felt so tired too. The fashion show, it just seemed like a relic. And you know what? All of this was alienating customers. But what was really alienating customers even more was a dramatic decline in quality. Facebook groups just filled with bad experiences. It seemed that while prices had stayed the same or even increased, The quality of the product was worse than ever, which, to be fair, has been the state of most retail and fashion since about 2010. We've seen a huge decline with all of the big retailers, right? We talk about that a lot around here. And before I forget to mention this, Victoria's Secret is a fast fashion. So of course this is happening. Well... I found a lot of really good comments going back. I had to go back in Facebook to find all of this. But for example, their quality has declined while their prices increase. This does not keep customers. I mean, that statement right there, that's something I hear about so many brands that are falling apart, right? How about this? I used to love this place until the underwear I bought fell apart after two gentle washes. Yeah. That's lame. I wouldn't shop there again either. You changed the manufacturing of one of the best bras I've ever worn. Your full coverage bra with underwire was an amazingly comfortable bra until you ruined it with cheap construction and thin fabrics. But of course, the price remained the same. I mean, that's just like a summary of fast fashion right there. But I do think when we talk about bras, and this was a big part of the strategy at Victoria's Secret for a long time, and I would assume it still is, 
It's all about finding these silhouettes that you just keep reordering because you know, you find a bra you like, you're just going to keep buying that one because there's so many disappointing bras out there. It's really foolish to take a bra that's been on your line for a long time and decide to aggressively change the quality to hit a price point. And this is something I've worked so many places where they've done this. It's just such a bad approach. Here's another amazing comment. I stopped shopping there years ago. The body shaming and forcing you into something that doesn't fit just for a sale was out of control. Oh, and it's all garbage and falls apart. I mean, yeah, Victoria's Secret was just hemorrhaging customers and customer devotion. And this is just the tip of the iceberg. I read so many comments about people who were like, after I had a baby, they made me feel fat. I can't fit into anything there and I never could. Or I used to be able to, I haven't changed size, the sizing changed. I mean, these are all such bad ways to run your business. And this is how you lose customers. Especially once again, when we go back to an item like a bra or underwear, where there's a lot of like brand loyalty involved because you find a bra or a pair of underwear that you like, you just keep buying them. It's just that simple. It's not trend and fashion-based, right? In April of 2018, brand insights firm YouGov showed that women's perception of Victoria's Secret had been in a decline since 2013. Its so-called buzz score, which tracks how customers feel about brands based on what they see and hear, had declined as Victoria's Secret had lost favor with women between the ages of 18 and 49, which would be Victoria's Secret's sweet spot, right? YouGov also said that the brand had found itself caught up in the Me Too moment. Its annual fashion show featuring its famous angels aired only a month after allegations of sexual harassment came out against Harvey Weinstein. There was this huge, like almost instantaneous sea change in terms of what was acceptable and what was not. And you know what? The show saw its television ratings sink 30 percent. I mean, in in a great way, that Me Too moment was the start of a new era. And customers were turned off by the sexy imagery in the stores, especially the incredibly sexy photography that would be in stores in the pink section, because pink was supposed to be really focused on like teenage girls, college girls. It was the youngest customers that would be going into that store And many people were really upset to see that kind of imagery in there. It didn't feel right to be objectifying women anymore, especially girls. Finally, right? Fucking finally. That ship had sailed, or at least I hope it's at the dock thinking about sailing away and it's never going to come back. But let's be honest here. When I was a teen, I thought Victoria's Secret was like, the sexiest place where all the sexiest people shopped. Like it was in my brain, right? I only had a few things from there because, you know, I was a teenage girl. My mom wasn't letting me go shopping there. She wasn't buying me thongs. I had this silver glittery nightie that I wore as part of like a futuristic look with silver boots and silver lipstick. And for a while, this was like my pretty regular outfit for going to the all ages alternative club. And I also had a pair of green velvet underwear with gold metallic binding. That's all I had. 
Both of these items were purchased because I worked at a bookstore in the mall that was next door to Victoria's Secret. So I would go in there and kind of like check out the sales section on my lunch break. But that was then. By 2010, I hadn't thought of Victoria's Secret in years. I never thought of it as a place I would go buy a bra. In fact, the last time I'd really thought of that brand on a regular basis at all was in the early aughts when shoplifters at the store I worked in would love I don't know why, but they loved to use Victoria's Secret shopping bags for stealing. And there wasn't one of those stores anywhere in our area. So my brain was automatically like triggered when I saw the pink bag, like, okay, that person's up to something no good. Anyway, Within the last few years, I've just thought of Victoria's Secret as a sad relic, the purveyor of a brand of sexiness that seems so dated, completely out of touch with now. It's an idea of sexiness that only includes thin, traditionally beautiful, young cis women with silky, slightly wavy hair on their heads, but no body hair anywhere else. And of course, the perfect thigh gap. It gives no space to people of different gender identities, of different body types, of different looks. Those people don't get to be sexy in Victoria's world. Perhaps that's her secret. Those people must hang out at the library wearing, I guess, probably burlap underwear, researching the best way to care for their hordes of cats, which, to be honest, all sounds pretty sexy to me. (laughs) Maybe not the burlap underwear. That sounds itchy. Furthermore, as sales dropped off because the brand was losing cachet and, I mean, it wasn't even offering the right product anymore, Victoria's Secret began to fall down the same slippery slope of discounting that has affected so many other brands in the past few years. Pink, which, as I said, had been carrying the retailer for years, that so-called sacred cow, was so heavily discounting everything that an industry analyst in 2018 said, We believe pink is on the precipice of collapse. Wow, that's some melodramatic language there. (laughs) And as if Victoria's Secret wasn't seeming tragic and dated enough, an executive, Ed Razik, publicly stated that he didn't think that the annual fashion show should ever feature transgender or plus-size models because it would ruin the, quote, fantasy of the whole thing. I want you to remember that name, Ed Razik, because he's coming back later. And he definitely faced some backlash for this statement and had to issue an apology letter. But I think that was the first public view that we were all getting into what the culture was really like at Victoria's Secret. I mean, I think we probably could have guessed that it was like an asshole convention at the office. But this is where we're starting to see that maybe it's worse than we thought, right? Or at least it's confirming what we suspected all along. And things were just getting worse and worse. In March 2019, L Brand shareholder Barrington Capital published a what is called a strongly worded public letter to Wexner, which laid out its recommendations to improve growth at the brand because they were like, you guys are blowing it. This letter told them to basically shape up their act and buy the right stuff because they weren't. And more specifically, the letter said, Victoria's Secret's brand image is starting to appear to many as being outdated and even a bit tone deaf 
by failing to be aligned with women's evolving attitudes towards beauty, diversity, and inclusion. Um, yes, exactly that. The letter also called for the brand to be led by a more diverse group of people saying, quote, the board lacks directors with a diversity of backgrounds, skills, and perspectives sufficient to meet the strategic needs of the company and ensure that it remains competitive in today's challenging marketplace. And you know what? Nine out of 12 of the brand's board members were men. I'm assuming they were white men. I'm assuming they were rich. They were definitely cis. And I'm assuming that a big chunk of the merchandising and marketing leadership was too. Once again, it brings us back to what we talked about in the beginning of the episode. Can old, white, rich, cis men really understand what to sell us in 2020? I just don't think they can. And they need to make space for people of all genders and backgrounds. We talk a lot on the pod about how these big brands are being run and primarily employing privileged, white, thin people. And here we are, seeing in practice how that is basically destroying a brand. In reality, it makes way more sense financially to hire different kinds of people for your company. I mean, sometimes I think about starting my own brand or business just so I can prove to the world that the best way to be successful is to hire smart, interesting, cool people of all kinds of backgrounds and practice your business with empathy and compassion. That would be amazing, right? I don't know why I'd sell, but that's my fantasy business plan right there. If you want to invest, holler at me. (laughs) So listen, Victoria's Secret listens to that letter and they start to make some of these changes in 2019, but there was still just like so much bad stuff going on to overshadow any of that work. I don't know if they're still doing any of that work, but no one cares about it right now in 2020. Because for one, there was less Wexner's connection to Jeffrey Epstein. Remember, he had been Wexner's personal financial advisor for years. And he had been using this like scam that he was scouting models for Victoria's Secret to exploit all kinds of young women over the years. Like, The brand was explicitly mentioned many, many times in press about the allegations against Epstein. That's kind of the worst PR you could get. Wexner denied knowing anything about Epstein's behavior, and he eventually publicly and financially distanced himself from him. But many people felt that it was completely unlikely that Wexner had never gotten wind of any of that abuse. I mean, I agree, right? It seemed as if he had been looking the other way for years. Next, there was a blockbuster, and I mean like all caps blockbuster, expose in the New York Times this February called Angels in Hell, The Culture of Misogyny Inside Victoria's Secret. Well, you know that's not going to go well, right? Okay. Remember Ed Razek? I told you to remember him. This is the executive who said the incredibly stupid and hateful thing about not including transgender and plus-size models. He was the subject of repeated complaints about inappropriate conduct. He tried to kiss models. He asked them to sit on his lap. He touched one's crotch ahead of the 2018 Victoria's Secret fashion show. He was disgusting. 
I'm sure that's just the tip of the iceberg there. And other executives had alerted Wexner to Razek's behavior numerous times, and he just sort of ignored it, much like he had probably ignored the behavior of Jeffrey Epstein. And lest you believe that Wexner is just an innocent victim who surrounds himself by the wrong dudes, there were many witnesses to Wexner demeaning women over the years. Among other things, in a meeting, Wexner had said, nobody goes to a plastic surgeon and says, make me fat. And that was in a conversation about not extending sizes in Victoria's Secret's products. Yeah, he's that guy, okay? From the same New York Times article, what was alarming to me as someone who was always raised as an independent woman was just how ingrained this behavior was said Casey Crow Taylor, a former public relations employee at Victoria's Secret, who said she had actually witnessed Mr. Razek's conduct. This abuse was just laughed off and accepted as normal. It was almost like brainwashing, and anyone who tried to do anything about it wasn't just ignored. They were punished. As a person who's worked in some pretty toxic cultures, in fact, almost mostly exclusively in really toxic cultures, I'm going to tell you that this, I know this feeling where you're like, well, I'm powerless to change this and no one's going to step in and protect me. So I guess it's my fault for being weak and not being able to get through it. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that like breaks you down over the years. And the disgusting misogynist behavior was all over the place at Victoria's Secret. For example, many of the brand's models were convinced to pose nude for free for a company photographer who later published those photos in a coffee table book and made money off of it. And executives knew about this. Executives have reported it to Razik. They had reported it to Wexner, and no one gave a shit. Potential models regularly spoke of a casting couch, of verbal abuse, of all kinds of creepy situations where they were basically trapped, forced to allow themselves to be groped or worse. And like I said, all of this was well known. It went all the way to the top. But everyone looked the other way. Eventually, when this article came out, all of this forced both Wexner and Razik to step down. But, and this is primarily in my opinion here, I would love to hear what you think, I think it's too late for Victoria's Secret. This year, L Brands tried to sell off the brand to a private equity firm in the early part of the year, and they backed out a few months later, partially because of the pandemic, partially because they felt that the company was running their business so poorly that it sabotaged their chances of ever being profitable with it after they bought it. It's kind of all tied up in court right now. And so, so far the company has permanently closed 250 stores in the U.S. and Canada this year alone. And it's in all kinds of legal trouble involving unpaid rent, which a lot of the large retailers are dealing with right now. And that includes owing more than $900,000 for its flagship store in Herald Square in New York City. It's hard for me to see how Victoria's Secret rebuilds its brand, brings back its customers, and undoes all the damage of the past few years. Also, during a global pandemic that is pretty much killing big retailers anyway. 
personally, I don't think we need Victoria's Secret unless they're going to do a total 180 and become a sustainable company that doesn't offer predatory store credit cards and low quality underwear that wants to dress everyone of every size and gender and taste and appearance. But I mean, how could they do that? You know, I think the world is okay to lose Victoria's Secret. I see this time as a chance for us to sort of reboot how we shop, where we shop, and really reevaluate our relationships with both the brands that we support and the stuff that we already own. It's a chance for new thinkers to step forward and help us all do this in a better way by offering us clothing and other stuff that was made by happy, well-paid workers and will last us a long time. It's time to throw all of these rich, white, cis men out of their offices and take their desks for ourselves. This is the time where we change the world. I don't want to squander this opportunity. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse, our first Patreon-exclusive episode. Thank you so much for supporting the show and my work. I mean, I'm going to try not to tear up here, but it means so much to me, and I'm so grateful for all of you. Next week's extra credit reading will be all about what we've talked about in this episode, and I'll also be sharing some old Victoria's Secret imagery and social media this week. Some of it's pretty cool. Some of it's kind of creepy. It's interesting to see how it's changed over the years, and I'm kind of digging that 80s Victorian vibe. (laughs) Anyway, so keep an eye out. If you have thoughts, reactions, a good suggestion for a place to buy bras, please reach out to me via DM on Instagram at Podcast or via email, clotheshorsepodcast at gmail.com or via the Clothes Horse Hotline, aka the best thing ever, 717-925-7417. And if you have a suggestion for the next Patreon episode, I want to hear it. Thanks, as always, to my other half, Dustin Travis White, for our music and audio support. Bye.